Sing hallelujah.
Life Church Livonia. What up, what up, what up, and happy Sunday. For those of you who are new or recently started attending, I want to offer you a special welcome. We love that you are here. You, we are, are so excited that you're checking us out, but we'd love to know that you're here. So take a second, click on the link in the description for this video, and let us know that you're here by going to our digital bulletin, which has a digital connection card, which gives you a chance to fill out some of your information and let us know. Or you can simply comment in the comment section and say, what up, I'm here, I'd love to connect. This gives us a chance to really get to know who you are and how you found out about us and what you're going through in life because we're not meant to live life alone. Here at Life Church Livonia, we love being on mission together. We love learning about one another. We love welcoming people into our church community. We don't just want to be nice people. We want to be a welcoming community where people experience hope and freedom in Jesus. One of the ways that we execute that is by having mission meetings. And this is a place where we learn a skill about loving people, about welcoming them, about being who God has called us to be. And so the next mission meeting that we have is going to be on August 23rd in the evening. If you're interested in being a part of that, let us know by going to that digital bulletin, filling out the form and letting us know so that we can make sure that we've got enough food for you. These are fun opportunities to really build some relationship in a different way than a Sunday morning. We believe that church is not just about showing up on Sundays, it's about being transformed completely through community and through love and through the salvation of Jesus. So as we move on with our service, I wanna make note of a couple of things. One, some of you, many of you, might know that we didn't have in-person service last weekend because we didn't have uh, we didn't have power at the school. And so we rapidly uh, communicated with everybody. And if you didn't get a communication about the fact that we weren't gonna have in-person service, we just wanna make sure that you get information about the things that we have going on at the church. One of the ways that you can go about doing that is clicking on the link uh, our digital bulletin and letting us know through our digital connection card commenting below. Let us know that you want to get our newsletter. That's a place where you have all sorts of information about the events and activities and fun things that we have going on. Bettina is going to be sending out our newsletter next week and you don't want to miss the communication about the things that we have coming up this fall because it is going to be an awesome and amazing uh, fall kickoff where we're really going to let you guys know about all the fun things that we have. So let us know that you want that newsletter if you haven't received it already or if you're not on that list already. Uh, lastly, I'm going to pray and we're going to move into the uh, sermon portion of our service today. But before I do that, I want to invite you guys into serving. Serving is something that we do uh, to give back to God, to say that um, I have time for you, Lord, that I have been changed by you. We all are created for a unique reason and purpose. And so you matter in this church community. Giving back um, 
is really important. We are less without you. And so when you volunteer, when you serve, you can greet at the doors, you can serve at the welcome center and welcome new people. You can disciple our youth and our kids on Sunday mornings. This is a pivotal and important part for our kids to know that they matter and that they're cared about and that Jesus uh, sees them and loves them. And you get to be a part of that when you're uh, serving on the worship team. There's just different ways to live fully into who God has called you to be. And we wanna partner with you. So you don't have to figure that out by yourself, but it is important to give back. It is important to serve. And that can be once a month, it can be twice a month. Uh, and we wanna partner with you, so let us know. Another way that you can serve and give is by um, worshiping God with your resources, with your finances. And there are two ways that you can give digitally. You can give through our website, you can give through PayPal. And this is just a way of worshiping God and, and celebrating who he is and what he's done in your life. Now I'm gonna pray and we're gonna move on with our service. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for the way that you've shown up in my life, in the life of our church, the way that you have revived us, that you breathe life into our, our marriages and our families and our friendships. And I just pray that you would continue to do that, Lord, that you would uh, breed transformation and redemption through the relationships that we're building. I pray for your word to rejuvenate us today and that we would submit more fully to who you are in every area of our lives. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Welcome, everyone. Great to be back from vacation. That's where I was last week. And Kate did a great job. Super thankful for her. Super thankful for Bettina, for our whole staff. If we haven't met yet, my name's Alex. What's up? I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Life Church Livonia. And welcome to week seven in our eight-week series on the Psalms. We've been in the Psalms all summer. I just love this book. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And one of the cool things about the book of Psalms is it's not filled with these moral pleas to change and repent. It's instead filled with this symphony of the human experience as the psalmists cry out to God in the messiest, most sinful, the most dark, the most disappointing, but also the most beautiful, joyous, and wonderful moments in life. And they're not looking to meet God in some distantly heaven future. They want to meet God right here, right now, as they are real people in the midst of really difficult circumstances, looking to meet their real God right in their real lives. And that's what we're all about here at Life Church Livonia. Thus far in our book of the Psalms study, we've read Psalms that deal with really difficult issues and with sin and hard circumstances that arise in people's lives. And whereas life is full of difficulty, life is not full of only difficulty, right? And today's Psalm is not a Psalm about difficulty or sin or trials. Today's Psalm is a little bit different. Today, we're going to be studying Psalm 119, and this is a psalm about God's Word, and it is dripping with creativity. I'm a songwriter, and I play in a band, and I love, love, love to make music. Uh, it's not just a hobby for me. There's something about the creative process that is cleansing and filling and satisfying and good for my soul. It just is important for me to have these creative outlets. And now, since early college, one of my favorite uh, musical artists has been a guy named John Mark McMillan. 
And a couple years ago, I was running a half marathon. I was feeling a little lonely. See, my band was out playing a show without me because the show is the same day as the half marathon. So, you know, like I'm trying to like waste the miles by distracting myself, right? So I call our drummer. I'm like, oh, hey, dude, what's up? Hey, are you guys having a fun time at the show? You guys are pretty good. Am I missing out on anything? You know, and <laughs> he couldn't talk very long, which I was bummed about. He was like, dude, I got like seven or eight more miles. So I put on a podcast, as one does when they're trying to just drown the pain of the miles, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so I'm listening to this podcast, and it was a podcast interviewing John Mark McMillan. And the interviewer asked him about worship music versus secular music, and what he thinks about whether or not Christians should listen to music that's not worship music. And John Mark gave the best reply I'd ever heard. He said, all music is worshiping something. All music, therefore, is worship music. There is no such thing as worship music and secular music, he said. What we call worship music is just worshiping God instead of money or fame or sex or nostalgia or something else. But every person writes songs about the things that matter most to them. And the thing at the very center of our lives that we form everything else around that thing, the thing that drives us, that moves us, that is what we worship. That answer rocked me because immediately I knew it was true as I was heading into mile nine, being blown away by John Mark's philosophies, you know. All music is worship music and all music is worshiping something. And furthermore, all people are songwriters. But the songs we write may not be with a piano or a guitar, but with our very lives. Our lives revolve around a center. That center may be a someone, like a parent, or a kid, or a spouse, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or a friend. Or that center may be around something. Maybe cars, maybe music, maybe guitars, maybe video games, maybe a phone, maybe comfort, maybe pleasure. We all have a center around which we orchestrate our schedules and time, our energies, our money, our relationships. And whatever that center is, is what we worship. And that forces us to ask a question. What's the song of my life worshiping? What's the song of your life worshiping? If someone were to follow you around for a week or two, follow me around for a week or two, doing everything I did and say, do it like following me to everywhere I went, what would they say the song of my life was about? Would they say it was about my favorite YouTube channels or social media? Would they say it was about my favorite video games or shows? Would they say it's about the approval of my friends or colleagues or family members? Would they say it's about my political views? Would they say that my life centered around my job or career or money? Would they say that my life was about my spouse or my desire to have a spouse? Maybe it would be your kids and maybe Despite our best efforts, maybe for some of us, our lives revolve around a hidden sin, an undealt with addiction, an unhealthy coping mechanism, a pattern of avoidance. Regardless of what our words say, our lives revolve around something, and that something is what we worship. And as followers of Jesus, the journey of maturity is a commitment to form our lives around God, His Word, His people, and His purposes. That's what we're here to do. And Psalm 119 demonstrates this 
powerfully. It is one of the most intricate, creative, and deep psalms in the whole Bible. It is vast, yet single-minded, and it's focused. Many psalms have more than one theme, but not Psalm 119. At its core, Psalm 119 is a worship song to God and to God's Word. This psalm is a poetic tapestry and a masterpiece that invites every single reader, including you and I, to answer one question. What song was I made to sing? What song was I made to sing? Now, to get the answer to this question, we're going to go through a, a three steps. First, got to look into the background of the psalm, you know, the cultural context. When was it written? Who wrote it? Why was it written? Then we're going to talk a little bit about what the psalm says. And then I really want to help you see what the psalm shows in its structure. So we're going to uh, open with just the background of this psalm. Whenever we read the Bible, it's really important to remember. The Bible is not a book. I know. Shocking. <gasps> it is a book. I have it on my bookshelf. It's not a book. It's a library of books. Okay. The Bible is a volume containing 66 different books written by over 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years, each with its own distinct combination of genres or singular genre. So when we're reading a book of the Bible, we want to ask questions like who wrote this, when was it written, and why was it written? So we're just going to start with who wrote this and when was it written. Now, the book of Psalms, again, is a compilation work, meaning it's got a lot of different authors that contributed to it, and it's not written by one person. Now, Psalm 119 doesn't have a signature. A lot of Psalms do where they say it was written by uh, Heman the Ezraite, or it was written by King David, or it was written by, you know, fill in the blank. This one doesn't. Some scholars believe it was written by Ezra, who was a priest of Israel, descended from Aaron, who was Israel's first priest. And Ezra's famous. There's a whole book of the Bible about him called, you guessed it, Ezra. I know, you guys are on your game. You can guess names in the Bible. So Ezra is really this story about a man who led people back from the Babylonian exile and who uh, brought them back to God's promised land, reteaching them God's words and God's ways. Now, to really understand the weight of Psalm 119, I want to give you just like a paragraph about the Babylonian exile. For all my people out there that don't like history, this is not your moment to phase out. Okay, stay focused. You're with me. We're focused on history. Okay? So, when God established the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, he saves them from slavery in Egypt. Woo! And then he says, listen, I want you to be my people. I'm going to be your God. You're going to represent me to the whole world. They're like, yeah! And then he said, okay, but here's the deal. You have to obey my laws. And if you don't, I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to cast you out of this promised land that I'm promising you. And you're going to be scattered amongst the nations. And they went, deal. They shook on it. Covenant was made. And then for hundreds of years, Israel did not follow God's word, law, or ways. And um, God, very graciously, for hundreds of years, sends prophets to tell them, hey, listen, this is what God said. If you don't turn and repent, these bad things are going to happen. And they said, thanks for the information. And then they either killed the prophets or exiled the prophets. So after hundreds of years of this, God finally says, okay, listen, I've warned you. I'm doing it. I'm making good on my word. You're out. And he exiles them. Uh, God sends the nations of Assyria and Babylon to exile Judah and Israel out of the promised land. Seventy years later, when the Israelites are finally returning from exile, it's really bittersweet. I mean, just imagine your people group 
identify God's presence with them by this land that they inherited through his power and might. And you come back from exile and you're just filled with hope, the anticipation. You can't wait to see this land you've heard so much about, but have never seen with your own eyes. And you get there and it's all in shambles. The great city of Jerusalem that you'd read about and heard about in all the stories, it's just a pile of bricks burned to the ground. It's a sign of the sin of your people, that they had abandoned God and God gave them over to their sin. This was deeply painful on a personal, physical, spiritual, psychological, social, and even cultural level. To return meant God had not abandoned them, which was wonderful and overwhelmingly hopeful. And yet, they returned to a burned-down city and a chaotic countryside that were a constant reminder of their sin. Despite that, this was a new season. It was a season of rebuilding, of refining their identity in God, of discovering who God had called them to be again. This was a dawning season. And the buildings that were once burned in Jerusalem began to be rebuilt. The temple began to take shape. Nehemiah comes back and they begin to rebuild the walls. And so to answer the question, when was Psalm 119 written? We don't know when it was written exactly, but we do know because it's in book five of the Psalms. Psalm has five volumes within the book, and this is in the last volume. That last volume, book five, was sung in this period of rebuilding. It was compiled by the returned Israelites to sing in their church services as they rebuilt their lives on God's hope, word, and promises. So our next question is, why was the psalm written? We now know it was written possibly by Ezra and that it was sung during the time the Israelites returned from exile. But who, like, what motivated the psalmist to write this? Again, the Bible doesn't have a sentence that says, this is exactly why Psalm 119 was written. This doesn't do that, right? But we can infer some things that help us to kind of grasp this question. First, one of the things we need to understand is Psalm 119 is not only the longest psalm, it is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. This bad boy comes in at a whopping 176 verses. That's right, you heard me. One, seven, six. Read them and weep. Okay, this bad boy is long. And the reason Psalm 119 is so long is because it's this acrostic poem. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes through each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which you can see here on the screen. The first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph and Bet, and normally the alphabet in Hebrew, it reads from left to right, or right to left, not left to right, but this is a rearranged for us because we speak uh, English. <laughs> and so you can see that the first two letters are Aleph and Bet. So the Hebrew people call their alphabet the Aleph Bet. It's got to be related to our word. I don't know how it is, but it's very interesting to me. So anyway, in Psalm 119, the psalmist gives eight verses eight lines to each of these letters and all eight lines begin with that letter so for all of the lines in Aleph every eight lines every each one of the eight lines begins with that letter Aleph when it goes to Bet each of the eight lines begins with Bet when it goes to Gimel each of the eight lines begins with Gimel you get the idea so this psalm is literally the ABCs of praise more on that in a few minutes to write a song that is 20 two stanzas long is a massive undertaking and in order to do so required a ton of thought 
and work. Can you imagine singing a song with 22 stanzas? I mean, I know some of the bridges in our worship songs get long, you know, some of them have long bridge syndrome, but this bad boy, just to read this psalm takes 17 minutes. Now imagine singing, that's just to read it. Now imagine singing it to music. That bad boy would be like a Rush song. That'd be over 20 minutes long. For all you Getty Lee fans out there, I look forward to hearing your rendition. But despite its length, the theme of this gargantuan psalm is totally focused. There's only one thing the author cares about talking about, and it's talking about God's word. There are eight different words used for God's word in this psalm. He calls it God's law, his word, his rules, his decrees, his statutes, his commands, his precepts, and his testimonies. And using these eight synonyms, the psalmist mentions God's word directly 177 times in 176 verses. That's crazy. Why so much? Why would he uh, be so over the top with this? Well, remember, Israel was exiled from the promised land because they had violated God's word and law over hundreds of years. So this psalmist has written a 22 stanza song using every letter of the Aleph bet to magnify and lift up the central importance of God's word as both a creative expression of his own passion, but also a creative confrontation to his wayward countrymen. So even though Psalm 119 doesn't explicitly say, this is why I was written, we can see pretty clearly that this psalm was written to call people back to the value, the worth, the supremacy, the importance, and the centrality of God's word as the center of their life and worship in order to reunite them with him and avoid any future exiles in the future. Now, normally at this point in the sermon, we've gotten the background, we've got our little setup done. Normally I would go verse by verse, <laughs> we would talk about the whole scripture, but you can write that sermon, man. I am not doing 176 verses, verse by verse. So instead, I'm going to do something a little wild. We're just going to talk about one verse. In all 176, we're just going to talk about one because I think this one verse sums up really clearly what this psalm says. And the verse we're going to read is focused on is Psalm 119, 105. And the verse reads like this. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. That none there is just the Hebrew uh, letter that this verse uh, falls under. It's, just, it's in that, um, that letter's eight lines. So your word is a lamp for my feet, a light to my path. In this verse, the author uses the word word to talk about scripture. I love saying that. The word word. It's like saying like my guy guy. And I do have a guy named Guy. He's awesome. He works at Tayotra. You should go check him out. Anyway, the Hebrew word used for lamp here is the word ner. This refers to a small lamp or candle used in the temple or in a home, and it gives just a little bit of light. This is why he says, your word, your nair, is a lamp for my, is a light to my feet. Because in the middle of the night, a nair, a little candle, it's not going to give you a ton of light. What a nair allows you to see is yourself and the next step or two in front of you. It can't light a large area. It's simply not powerful enough. And so he's saying, all I can see is where I am and what my next step is. 
And the psalmist is saying, God, your word is like that. And when we carry it with us like a lamp, we can't see everything, but it will tell us the truth about where we are. And God will show us what our next step is. Very beautiful. A beautiful picture of God's word. And I have experienced that personally in my own life. However, the next word, when he says a light on my path, that word isn't nair. It's a very different word. The next word he uses for light is the word or. And this word doesn't mean small lamp like a candle. This literally means the dawn, as in like the light of the sun. Okay, the light doesn't just light up what's directly in front of me. This light allows me to see everything that's in reality. It's only by this light that I see anything at all. And everywhere I go, this light is what gives color and shade and growth and warmth and life to every earthly reality in the whole cosmos. This is not just a light. This is the light. Furthermore, the Lexham Theological Wordbook says this about the word or. It says, the core idea of this verb has to do with the giving of light, not just seeing it. Related to the concept of blessing, the verb can also function as a part of a figurative expression, meaning to show favor. In the Old Testament, people sometimes request that God make his face or shine upon them. This is a figurative request for God to show favor. In the formula of blessing in Numbers 6, 24 through 26, Aaron and his sons say to the Israelites, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh will make his face shine or upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh will lift his face upon you and he will give you peace. So this word, when he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet, or a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is not just the supreme light of the sun. This is a word of blessing implying that God's very presence with his people is this light of the whole world. So this little verse says that God's word is a lamp that helps us see in the dark and shows us what our next step is. And at the same time, God's word is the light of God's presence that gives sight and color and warmth and life to everything in the whole world. The constant refrain of Psalm 119 is the centrality and importance of God's word and how it is a blessing that guides us out of destruction and into life. So now we have some background on the psalm. We see what the psalm says about this importance and centrality of God's word. But I really want you to understand what does this psalm show because the structure of this psalm is so unbelievable to me. I mentioned before, the psalm uses 22 letters of the Hebrew Aleph Bet to talk about God's law. Each letter gets eight verses and uses eight different words for God's word. Why would the psalmist do that? Like, what's the significance there of using eight? The significance of eight in Hebrew thinking is actually very deep. You see, four is a number that represents the cosmos, right? The four horsemen in Revelation, the four corners of the earth, the four winds, the four rivers in the Garden of Eden. You get the idea that it just represents kind of like everything. And eight, if you know your math, right? Eight is twice as much as four, right? So eight is four doubled. So if four represents everything, Eight represents like completeness, like totality, like total fulfillment. 
And we see this in the book of Genesis, right? God made the world in six days. On the seventh day, God, humanity, and everything else in creation rested on the Sabbath. But have you ever wondered what happened on the eighth day? Well, see, on the eighth day, the world that God had made and the structures he designed it within, Sabbath included, were fully complete. And on the eighth day, God was no longer creating alone. But on the eighth day, that was humanity's first day of working this garden with God. God had created an oasis of life in the desert of space. And then he made human beings to be co-gardeners with him in this garden of the world. And on the eighth day of creation, God's intention for everything he made was finally realized as human beings became co-creators with their creator. Hebrew scholars have argued that we live constantly in the eighth day of creation when we co-create with God until the new age comes. So this psalm is using the structure of the alphabet and this repeating theme of eight that is inescapable and permeates the entire thing to signify this importance of human beings creating with God. And what I love about this is this guy is creatively in this song about how much he loves God using uh, the symbolism that God gives in scripture to creatively call back to him. <clears throat> but there's more. Because there is not just significant in the number eight, there's also significant in the using of the alphabet. You may be wondering like, okay, that's cool. I mean, it's just a big undertaking, right? Like, why choose the alphabet to make this psalm important or, you know, to structure this whole thing? Well, there's a couple layers to this. Uh, Hebrew thinking loves layers, and so there's layers to this. The first verse of Psalm 119 is kind of an inverse mirror of the first verse of Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is Psalm 1 because it's believed to poetically describe Genesis 1. So the people who were compiling Psalms went, wouldn't it be great if the beginning of the book of Psalms mirrored the beginning of the Bible? And actually the five volumes of the Psalms uh, correspond to the first five books of the Bible. I, we could get into that. I don't have time to talk about it. I wish I did. It's very cool. But if we look at the first verse of Psalm 119 and understand that this is calling back to Genesis, I want to read Genesis 1 for you. Genesis 1, 1, the very first uh, verse in the whole Bible. It says, in the beginning, God, dot, created the heavens. Do you see that dot? I bolded these two characters here that that dot represents. This is an untranslated word in the English uh, reading of, of the scriptures. And the reason it's untranslated is it's not really a word. It's kind of a symbol. It, it's an interesting thing that, that doesn't quite make sense. If you were to try to sound it out, it would sound a little bit something like et. Because this word here is the combination of the Hebrew character Aleph and the Hebrew character Tav, which is the first letter of the Aleph bet and the last letter of the Aleph bet. So this passage literally reads in Hebrew, In the beginning God, A to Z, created the heavens. 
Hebrew scholars read this as literally, in the beginning, God used his word to reveal language. And with language, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke the whole world into creation from A to Z, from Aleph to Tav. Don't you see God spoke by his word to create all things and through his word, God poured out his love creatively into making something new as an expression of his own love. This is exactly what we see in John chapter one when it says in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. So when the psalmist of Psalm 119 uses Aleph, to Tav, to structure the whole psalm. This is not random. The psalmist is creatively answering back to God with the entirety of his language, participating in this eighth day of creation to write a love song about God, to God, with words, about God's words, praising God for the gift of his word, by which his next steps are revealed, by which his own self is understood, and by which all of creation is revealed and sustained. That is what Psalm 119 is about. It is so rich. It is so deep. This is not simply a song about God's word. This is a creative masterpiece, a magnum opus, a literary wonder. In its use of structure, of language, of poetic organization, of synonym, of metaphor, of theme, this psalm cries out, God created you to be a co-creator with him. You were made for infinitely more than being a comfortable consumer, obsessing about houses or jobs or money or what people think of you or cars. You were made to make things that matter. And you were made to make things that matter with the maker of all matter in the universe. You were made to creatively pour out and build things that echo beyond your life and last into eternity. You were called forth by God's word used to use every ounce of your creative energy and every cell of your whole body to co-write the song that God began singing in the grand symphony we call life. You were called to partner with Jesus to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth so that the world of peace with no violence or sickness or tears or cancers or death or disease or hatred or sin so that that world that God designed would come from heaven to earth in and through you. Your life is writing a love song to something or to someone don't settle for lesser things. Let the song of your life be one that is written to God and to God alone. Because all these other things, they cannot fill you. It's just simply not their design. They weren't made to. They can't sing the song back to you, but God can and he will. It was his song first. He's the one that started this song of life. And when we center ourselves on him, we create this circle of worship where in Genesis 1, God cries out, you're so very good. And we cry out, Lord, you're so good. 
And he says, I love you so much. We say, no, Lord, I love you so much. And he says, I give myself to you. We say, no, Lord, I give myself to you. And it creates this circle of worship where we are singing together this song of creation as we are co-creators with God, co-gardeners in his garden, co-makers in his world with him. You were made for so much more than comfort and pleasure. On the cross, Jesus died for your sins. And he died for my sins because all worship of lesser things, of the idols we put on God's throne, these things steal the song of our lives and leave us empty. And they break that circle of worship, separating us from God and making us shells of the human beings God originally designed. You were made for more. God made you to be a knower and lover of him, a follower of his word and a creator. God's word, Jesus Christ, the Logos, he created you. And by his word, the Bible, through the word, Jesus, God wants to recreate you so that you can join him in this eighth day where the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Where your purpose is clear, where your life is bursting with beauty and with meaning. You have a purpose. You have a meaning. You were made to make. You are not a mistake. You were created to be a creator, not a worshiper of lesser things. Today, Jesus is reaching his hand out to you to forgive your sins, to heal your diseases, to satisfy your soul, to give you rest. Take Jesus' hand and be forgiven. Be healed. Be satisfied. Find rest. Jesus lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross for your sins. And he died on the cross for my sins. And on the third day, he rose from the dead so that you and I might have life and life to the full, both in this life and the next one. And maybe you find yourself here this morning and your heart is just stirring. And maybe you don't even know why. But what I'm talking about, about the significance of being this co-creator with the creator of all things, something in you just sparks at that. And when I talk about what are you worshiping? What's the song of your life about? Something in you just feels that tinge, that pain of like, ah, oh, something's off there. Those sensations, that's God speaking to you. Because God wants more for your life than these lesser things that are going to promise you the world and only give you destruction. Maybe you're here this morning and you believe in God, but you've just been living for other stuff. Maybe you've been living for yourself. And you just feel this churning in your gut, this unrest, this fluttering in your heart. Listen to that. That is God coming to you. And maybe this morning you've never had a relationship with Jesus. But again, something about what I'm saying, it's striking a chord in you and you don't even have words for it. I want to invite you, if that's you, pray with me right now. And take that song of your life and recenter it on God. Join back in this circle of worship in which you will find meaning and purpose and life to the full. Would you pray with me? Lord, I have made lots of things the most important thing in my world. And Lord, your word, your presence, your life, it's not been one of them. Lord, something about this in me is longing for what uh, we're talking about today. And God, I just pray that you would show me what to do. Your word says that 
This is a lamp unto my feet. Show me my next step because I want to live in this bursting, beautiful, grand, symphonic beauty that we call life. And I want to experience it all to the full. And I want to contribute in ways that matter into eternity and live way beyond me. And Lord, I pray that you would show me what to do. I repent of my sin. And Lord, I take the circle of my life, the song of my life, and I make you the center of it now. Show me my next steps, Lord. And I, I just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to reveal that to me. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us. We want to walk alongside you and help you take your next steps on your spiritual journey. Welcome to communion. In communion, we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. And we physically participate in this sacrament. We physically participate in a spiritual reality. We believe that Jesus' death and resurrection truly does give us new life. And as we observe this sacrament of communion and we intake physical food and drink, that physical food and drink also give us new life, creating new cells in our body. And this is a symbol of what our belief in Jesus does on a spiritual level, a mental level, an emotional level, and yes, even a physical level. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he told his disciples, whenever you have this Passover meal where you celebrate that God has freed you from slavery, you do this in remembrance of me. And I would encourage you now at home, please take and eat. Jesus, we just bring our scattered senses and minds to you. As we eat this bread, Father, we just pause and know that it is through your broken body that we have hope, that we have eternal life, that we have richness and fullness of life in this present life, and that we have redemption and reconciliation. And Lord, we just confess our sins right now, and we accept anew that gift. After the bread, Jesus took the cup, and he told his disciples, whenever you drink this, Drink this in remembrance of me, for this is my blood shed for you. Lord, we just receive your blood that washes us clean, that frees us from sin, that is over the doorposts of our hearts, protecting us from death. And Lord, we just worship you for that. And we just receive this gift afresh today. Thank you for your death and resurrection. Thank you for your sacrifice. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for that message, Alex. We are so grateful for the word that you bring to us, that you make God's word so accessible and you help us to really uh, get handles on how to apply God's truth for our lives.
Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. We are so glad that you chose to spend some of your weekend with us and we look forward to seeing you next weekend when Marcy Rahill is going to bring us a word and wrap up our Psalm series. And in two weeks, we're going to be kicking off our Jonah series as well. And the reason why we do series is because they're easy invitation opportunities. So consider who you might invite to be a part of our Jonah series. Come to church with you. Come over and watch service with you. Just be thinking and praying about who God has on your heart to invite into you learning um, and submitting to God's word. Thanks for being here, you guys. We'll see you soon. Bye.